be turning in your Bibles to uh, somewhere in the first few chapters of Genesis. Probably, I'll probably pick up reading somewhere over around the latter part of 11, 12. We'll get there in a little bit. What I want to do first is uh, just give you a running commentary of uh, where we've been, take a few minutes, and uh, uh, just somewhat summarize some things, tie them together in the first 10 chapters going into chapter 11. Now, of course, you have your entire sequence, the septenary structure, set forth in the first 34 verses. Uh, all of chapter 1 uh, leading into chapter 2, three verses. Then in chapter 2, we find uh, commentary on that which occurred in chapter 1, leading into, of course, uh, the creation of man in chapter 1, uh, the woman created in the man in chapter 2. We find out a little more about how man was created created out of the ground, whether a lump of clay dust, it, uh, the word could be understood either way, but it's out of the ground, a man made from the ground. He wasn't created alive, uh, an inanimate uh, being, and God breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. Man became a living soul. Evidently, because God breathed and the word for spirit and breath, one and the same, a spirit, their uh, man became at this point uh, evidently a triune being made in the image and likeness of God. Now, later in the chapter, we find the man put to sleep, his side opened, and out of the open side, God took a rib, formed the woman. So, and then presented the woman back to the man as a helpmate. Now, it's, uh, we, uh, it seems almost uh, as if Scripture's getting ahead of itself, but not so. This is the way God laid it out. I say it seems almost like it is because we have the uh, bringing into existence of the bride prior to something in chapter 3, and that is... The uh, man, uh, sin brought into the human race uh, through uh, deception, and the uh, man uh, partaking of sin, typifying Christ down the way uh, 4,000 years later, becoming sin for us who knew no sin. Adam partook of sin, type at a type. But it was at Calvary that Christ's side was open. So you see in the uh, chronology, it's really uh, the, the uh, chapter 2 anticipates chapter 3. Chapter 3 explains a little bit more about chapter 2. Then you get into chapter 4 and explains a little bit more about what's preceded. And I, sh- I should have mentioned uh, salvation by grace uh, way back at the beginning of chapter 1, and we continue to learn things about that through what occurs in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4. Now, what I'm alluding to there, of course, is death and shed blood. Seen in chapter 3, and it's a man who acts, and it's entirely through divine intervention because it's the man Christ Jesus 4,000 years later who acts. And in chapter 4, we add to chapter 3 and see that it's the man himself who dies. 
You see, Cain slays Abel. Israel slays Christ. All of this ties together, and it moves you from beginning to end. Really, the from beginning to end is seen in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then looking at chapters 3, 4, 5 together. Let's look at the, at the uh, church first, introduced in chapter 2. Uh, two. I thought I mispronounced 2. I was backing up. I believe I got it right. Introduced in chapter 2, then chapter 3 adds a little more. But chapter 4, the offerings of Cain and Abel, one disobedient, the other obedient. You could see two types of Christians right there. And then in chapter 5, we have a man taken out alive before another man goes through the flood. And the man going through the flood comes out on the other side, he and his family, onto a new earth. And right before that, we see the picture of how Israel will exist at the end of the tribulation. Enoch typifying the church being removed before the tribulation. And of course, we've had a lot stated about the church back in chapters 2, 3, and 4, along with a lot stated about Israel in chapter 4. But now we're about to see a whole lot about Israel. Take this uh, one new man in Christ out. Now, I made this statement. It'd be a good time to illustrate it. I made this statement out at Faith Baptist when I started the three-part series on the rapture of the church, and I've made it a couple of times since, I believe. And the statement was that there's not really a whole lot in Scripture about the rapture of the church per se. Scripture deals centrally with Christians before the rapture and with Christians at the judgment seat and both with a view to the Messianic era. And they're caught out to appear before the judgment seat to give an account of their lives prior to that with a view to the Messianic era. Now, it can be illustrated quite easily in uh, Genesis uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and beyond. There's only about four verses, I believe, about Enoch removed without dying. But when you start, get to the end of the chapter, uh, Noah is brought upon the scene, his three sons. Then he he's the subject of uh, attention uh, Throughout the next few chapters, and you get into Abraham, the subject of attention, and on and on you go with the nation of Israel. And that's what I'm saying. There's really not that much about the rapture per se. It deals with Christians before. It deals with Christians after at the judgment seat. Take, for example, in Matthew 24 or Luke, both accounts of the Olivet Discourse, where this would be dealt with. Now one taken, another left. I'm referring to the first of the four parables in the Christian section of the Discourse. Uh, so many tried to apply the rapture there or over in the corresponding section in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. I'm sorry, it won't fit. You correct the translation, it's really one received alongside the other turned away. The rapture has already occurred. And this is a scene before the judgment seat of Christ. 
One, uh, those caught off, it's the same thing as uh, seen in the book of Ruth. Here's Ruth who prepares herself, washes herself, anoints herself, puts on raiment in order to appear before Boaz on his threshing floor, which foreshadows the judgment seat of Christ. You can reference Matthew uh, 3, a reference to Christ's threshing floor, relative to a course or a parallel passage to show this has to do with the judgment seat. But Ruth preparing herself, appearing before Boaz on his threshing floor, foreshadowing Christians, note, preparing themselves before the rapture to appear before Christ at his judgment seat. You see, the rapture is not seen there, nor is the rapture seen in the Olivet Discourse accounts. It deals with before and after. Though we have enough scriptures dealing with the rapture that we know when it occurs. I've dealt with that in three uh, sessions, so we'll go on from here. Now, we have Noah going through the flood. Then at the end of the flood, the end, well, I say the end of the flood, the end of the 150 days when God closed the floodgates and stopped the subterranean waters from coming up. Evidently, all the waters had been depleted from above, and there had to be a tremendous amount of water above the atmosphere to have torrential rainfall for a solid 150 days. And uh, to cover the earth uh, uh, completely at the end of 40 days, then the water continues to build up. But right at the end of the 150 days, we have Noah and his family in the ark above the Ararat mountain range, foreshadowing Israel at the end of the tribulation, being not the tail of the nations anymore, but the the Gentile world power destroyed with the, uh, well, I say destroyed for all practical purposes, destroyed, Gentile armies themselves, I was trying to think of a word to rather say rather than themselves. I don't want to say their, well, forget it. Gentile armies coming out at the end of the tribulation in this decimated state. Christ will literally, when he returns, restores Israel, he will literally drag them into the land to destroy them. That's really where Israel is pictured. You see, this destruction is not seen yet. We're about to see it in chapters uh, 10, first part of 11. But Israel at this point, at the point Christ returns, they're really pictured as placed uh, above destroyed Gentile world powers, no longer the tail, but elevated back to the head. It would be a similar scene to the woman in Revelation 12. She is crowned. You see, here's Israel, God's firstborn son, and only sons rule in God's kingdom within either the angelic realm or the human realm, and within the human realm, it is firstborn sons who rule. And firstborn sons are about to replace the present sons. And Israel, seen in Revelation chapter 12, 
with the crown upon her head, and the word used there is not diadem, but Stephanos. Now, those ruling wear diadems. A diadem upon one's head in Revelation would signify or point to an individual actually seated on the throne. A Stephanos could indicate an individual either at one time seated on the throne, but no longer seated on the throne. That would, be, that would have been the case with the 24 elders, or perhaps I should say it will be the case. It has been the case because John saw it come to pass. And because it has come to pass, you can't change history. It will come to pass. But when Christ returns, he'll have many diadems upon his head. And when he returns, those Stephanos seen in Revelation uh, 12 upon Israel's head will become diadems. And that's what's foreshadowed by Israel, rest, uh, not Israel, but Noah resting above the mountain range, mountains signifying kingdoms, these kingdoms below the flood waters destroyed, Israel elevated above all with a view to God restoring this nation and blessing not only Israel but the Gentile nations through Israel. That's what all lies out ahead, and that's what we're going to talk about. And that takes us into Revelation, not Revelation, I keep trying to put the last book in Scripture back at the first. Don't want to do that, leave it where it is. But that takes us to the destruction of Gentile world power in uh, Genesis uh, 10, 11. We dealt with that in the last lesson. I won't belabor the point. But you see how you the evolution of thought from one end to the other is all seen right in the first 11 chapters. So what are we going to do tonight with chapters, I'm going to take a big chunk, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because I want to home in on a couple of different places, and we really homed in on one already in the lesson this morning, and that has to do with uh, Genesis 14, with the Battle of the Kings and Melchizedek, but I want to go back there in a little bit and point to something out and go a couple of other places, spend just a uh, a little bit of time there. The other, the other place I'll be spending a little time is in uh, chapters 18 and 19. But what, uh, so what, to, in uh, our evolution of thought, so to speak, evolution, that's a good word. Uh, people, like to, uh, people like that word from the pulpit. But it is a good word. It's just used wrong relative to man evolving and so forth. But the evolution of thought through these uh, chapters, as God designed them, as he, uh, through his spirit, moved Moses to record them. You know, I have a commentary in my library that uh, where a man that's supposedly fundamental, I guess he is in ways, he's gone to be with the Lord now on Genesis, and he tries to say that... Uh, all these records were passed down from father to son, and Moses finally got a hold of them and put together the book of Genesis, and that this is perfectly in line with God taking his spirit and moving Moses to write the book. I really don't understand one in the light of the other. 
but uh, some look at it that way, and we'll uh, not talk about that. We'll go on from there. But I do want to emphasize something that is seen in the New Testament, and uh, you've heard of your documentary theory of the authorship of the Pentateuch. Uh, They don't know who they were, but J wrote a little bit, E, D, P, so forth. They just designate them by uh, letters. They don't think Moses wrote uh, uh, the Pentateuch, your first five books of, of the Bible. Even though the New Testament, even Christ himself, attributed this section of Scripture to Moses. Now, I said something there that I don't like to phrase like I did. Let me, let me tell you what I said, and you'll see what's wrong with it, and let me rephrase it. I said that the New Testament does a certain thing, and even Christ himself. You see, you can't separate the New Testament from Christ. So let's, let's rework that. In other words, the Word of God in the New Testament, which is just, just as much the Word of God as the Old Testament, makes that statement. So when the Spirit of God moved Moses to write, I can't see Moses getting a bunch of records together. You all can work on it yourselves. All right, again. We're going to pick up in Genesis uh, chapter, latter part of 11. Now let's read in 12. Let's uh, turn and turn to uh, Genesis 12. Let's read a few verses there, and it'll allude back to chapter 11. Genesis 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in these shall all families of the earth be blessed. We'll stop our reading there and I'll talk a little bit. This is what Abraham was told in Ur of the Chaldees at the age of 70. And he's 70 and five years old at the point he enters into the land. And we'll find him in later... uh, Times uh, during the in the chapters that we're going through, uh, on up in years and uh, the birth uh, leading into the birth of Isaac at the age of 100, but we're not going to get that far in Genesis. When Abraham comes into the land, he pitches his tent between Bethel and Hai, and then there's a problem. He goes down into Egypt. Uh, uh, tells a, I guess you call it a white lie, I'm not sure, but let's, let's leave that alone because that's really not part of our lesson. Comes up out of Egypt and in chapter 13, he and his nephew Lot that was allowed, the Lord allowed Lot to go into the land with Abraham. Why would the Lord allow this? He stopped to Abraham's father. Abraham's father had no inheritance in the land. Lot has no inheritance in the land. Well, I'll ask you another question. Maybe it'll answer this question. Why did he allow Abraham and Sarah to try to help him out relative to the birth of a son? You see, the birth of uh, Ishmael through Hagar. 
Well, it's the same reason again. He allowed Lot to come into the land. He allowed the birth of Ishmael in order to teach great spiritual truths. Neither has any inheritance with uh, Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, but Ishmael, uh, great spiritual truths there relative to the man of flesh, the man of spirit. Same thing with uh, Lot coming in with Abraham. Great spiritual truths. But now when they came up out of Egypt, they were both rich in uh, cattle uh, particularly. And uh, there was a conflict between the herdsmen of Abraham's uh, cattle and Lot's cattle. And Abraham magnanimously offered uh, Lot any part of the land. You go to the right hand, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. And here's where the spiritual lessons began. Lot lifted up his eyes. He looked out here, saw the well-watered plain of Jordan. He said, that's for me. And that's exactly what a lot of Christians do today. They don't seem to want to disassociate, disassociate themselves from the world. They look out, see the well-watered plain, and that's for me. And we have our churches filled with them. And I'll tell you something, and many of you have experienced it. Once you get a hold of the word of the kingdom and let the word of the kingdom get hold of you. Now that latter is important. Let it get hold of you. These things out there in the Jordan plain are just going to start fading away. You're no longer interested in them. But you have to find out what this book is all about. That is the problem out there among Christians today. They are not being taught what this book is about. A lot of them, uh, most of them, almost all of them, are so far removed from reality insofar as what Christianity really is in the first place that you wouldn't find hardly any of them interested if you went out and tried. But that's the problem right there. Now, Satan has done a work. I mean, it's, uh, look where we are. Look what the leaven has done. Man, you talk, you talk about someone who's been successful. But you know what? He can take it all the way down, which he will. And in the end, it's going to turn out just like the book states it will. Once God takes Israel through the tribulation, you have repentance at the uh, end when they're brought to a point where they have nowhere to turn other than to the, to the uh, God of their fathers. They call upon him. They have a promise. They have a promise that no one else has. That when they do this, he will hear from heaven, remember his covenant, return, take care of matters. Their national conversion will follow that when they look upon the one whom they pierced. Then other things will follow. Now let me take you a little bit farther. Then I want to pick up on something that Royce got into a little bit during his last session. And uh, Jim alluded to something, and I'll just kind of tie it together at this point. It's interesting how these messages are somewhat dovetailing together. Because Royce uh, got into an area that uh, I didn't know whether I would use or not, but I, I believe I will. And uh, Jim has gotten into areas that uh, he probably felt the same way about it, because maybe something I said or Royce said, but 
these messages have, uh, have come together. It's, it's not amazing. It's, uh, um, I think you've heard of the Lord's leadership. I, I hesitate to say that, but uh, I'm sure you have. All right. Once Lot separates himself from Abraham, then we have the Lord uh, calling attention to the land that he's given to Abraham. And we find the covenant made uh, later in a, in a later chapter. But uh, you get down into, uh, let me see, I, I was looking at something, I was in the wrong chapter, but uh, what I said was uh, correct, that uh, you have attention called to the land, the covenant made in a later chapter. And here I was in the later chapter looking at the covenant, which is on over in chapter 15. Uh, I was kind of, uh, I was about to wonder what in the world is happening, but I see what's happened. I was looking on the wrong page. All right, once he calls attention in the latter part of 13, chapter 13, to the land uh, that, uh, uh, the land in the covenant that he's about to make, uh, that is made in chapter 15, then you have the battle of the kings. And uh, since we, I dealt with this the last hour, dealing with Melchizedek uh, and so forth, that is, I said last hour this morning, that would be last hour as far as I'm concerned, be the second hour that I'm up here. But now, what I wanted to call to your attention is in verse 16, chapter 14, verse 16. When Abraham took his trained men and went out to fight within the battle of the kings, he brought back all the goods. Now these have to do with the goods of the cities of the plain. You have uh, two different opposing powers within the battle of the kings. And he brought back these goods, and again his brother Lot and his goods. Now notice he brought back all the goods of these kings. That is important within the type because following the battle of the kings, you see, that's where we have Melchizedek coming into view, Christ exercising the Melchizedek priesthood. He will exercise the Melchizedek priesthood following the battle of the kings, following the trampling of Gentile world powers that he drags into the Middle East after he returns. You see, we often... Really, I thought this way for years, and some people think this way, that when Zechariah 14, uh, uh, 4 occurs, when Christ returns and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that all these Gentile powers will be somehow around there, and at that time he will trample the wine press. Now, I don't know why I thought that way. But uh, let me disabuse your minds if you're thinking that way, because that's not the picture at all. There's a 75-day period at the end of the tribulation before the millennium starts. That's right at the end of the book of Daniel. And during this 75-day period, a great number of things will occur. But let me take care. Now, Roy's called attention to what I'm about to do right now. Let me take care of something else, and then I'll get back to this. See? And I will get back to it. 
Again, back to verse 16, bringing back all the goods of these Gentile powers. What do you suppose that refers to? Take a look at Isaiah 60. Just drop your place in Genesis. You can find that real easy. Uh, Isaiah 60, and I want to go to a couple of verses there. Then I want to call your attention to a type. Isaiah 60, go down in verse uh, 5. Well, really, uh, we could read the verses prior to that. It has to do with Israel in the Messianic era. In verse 5, Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces. Now, the KJV translators, with the way they understood words, in that day may very well have used a good word here. I don't know. We would understand it more as wealth today. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. We see the same thing in verse 11. Therefore thy gates shall be upon uh, uh, open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the wealth of the Gentiles, that their kings may be brought. Now, do you remember the story of Laban and Jacob? Where uh, Jacob worked for Laban uh, seven years for the wrong woman, worked another seven years for the right woman. That story uh, there where he worked these number of years. Now, Jacob acquired a certain amount of the wealth of Laban. And he expressed a desire to return to the land. But it wasn't time for Jacob to return to the land. The Lord hadn't opened the door for him to return. And there was one other problem with Jacob returning to the land at this time. He couldn't return to the land before he acquired all the wealth of Jacob. You see, when the Gentiles, when the uh, Jewish people rather, are brought back into the land... They will acquire all the wealth of the Gentiles. All of this wealth is going to be Israel's. Now that alone will tell you that the nation in the Middle East has gone back before its time under a Zionistic movement. They don't have all the wealth of the Gentiles. They've gone back in unbelief. There's so many reasons why that this is not God regathering Israel but so many Bible students believe this is a beginning of uh, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, God regathering the nation back to the land. Now, I don't know what they would say if they were going to be around here when in the middle of the tribulation and the man of sin comes in and uproots all of these Jews and drives them out to the ends of the earth, uh, that is, those that, are not, that do not escape to a specially prepared place in the land, or those not sold as slaves throughout the Gentile nations. But during the last half of the tribulation period, a Jewish nation will not exist in the Middle East. As far as people in that day will be con uh, think or be uh, concerned themselves with thought uh, would perhaps be that all is lost, and the Jewish people will really be driven to that state in order that 
God may bring them to a point that they would call upon him for help. That's the, to the uh, tribulation and scenes like this will be what it will take to bring the Jewish people to this state. Now I'm going to take you back to where I left you. I promised that I would, and that's where we are. We're going to, this is all I'm going to do with Genesis 15. You can just turn over to 18 and 19, and I'll be over there in, it's going to take a while to do this, but uh, I'll be over there in a minute. Now, how do I know this sequence of events uh, that I've uh, been laying out before you? Christ's return and, uh, uh, well, let's drop back behind that. Israel brought to the state of uh, where they, they have no choice but to call upon the God of their fathers. They're just uh, beside themselves. The nation, it appears, is gone. It's about to be wiped out. The man of sin is about to have his way. Satan's about to have his way. They're driven to this point. They call upon the God of their fathers. So let's start there. He hears, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, if you want this chronology, it's all back in the book of Exodus. Uh, right now I'm in what, Exodus 3, right in there. He hears from heaven now. He sends back to deliver, just like he sent Moses in Exodus. Moses appeared, was received by the people. Christ will appear. This time he'll be received, not rejected. They're going to look upon the pierced one. And do you remember the scenario I set before you? When was it? Last night, about Daniel's 70th week. By the way, uh, I want to show you something about Daniel's 70th week. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you can find your place in, in 1819. Uh, drop your place, go over to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. I'll be there in a little bit. Uh, it's, a, it's a word I want to, to show, you, show to you. It's a rather, it's rather unique in, in a respect. All right. Now, where I told you that my message would dovetail with Royce's, I want to go briefly uh, over the festivals in Leviticus 23. That's one way that I can know the order of events. And these festivals line up with the order of events in Exodus. Did you know that the entire book of Exodus is a prophecy except for that one section dealing uh, uh, with foreshadowing the birth uh, of uh, Christ? To, well, not the birth of Christ, but... Christ coming to his people the first time, being rejected, going but going to the uh, far side of the uh, uh, desert, taking a Gentile bride. Uh, it's that uh, just small section constituting equivalent to about one chapter of the 40 chapters. You have about 39 over 40. Uh, that's your fraction, 39 over 40 of uh, the book of Exodus is prophecy, hasn't been fulfilled yet. True, you had a run of history on this, but it all foreshadows that about to take place. It starts out with the Israelites in Egypt, a type of the world, under bondage to an Assyrian ruler. What are you going to have out during the tribulation? The Israelites out in the world, under bondage to an Assyrian ruler. That's where the book of Exodus starts. But there's one, one brief backdrop shortly after that. 
that is uh, history and brings you into the present. But all except that, it's all future. We're about to see, not you and me, but the world is about to see the fulfillment of more biblical prophecy over a short period of time, just a few years, more biblical prophecy being fulfilled and has occurred in the last 6,000 years. Most of the Bible is prophecy that is about to be fulfilled. I love these uh, commentators that uh, give you the number of prophecies in the Bible. How in the world can they do that? You can't number the uh, prophecies in the Bible. Most of it is prophecy. They've ignored the types in doing this. Types are... Almost all of them are very prophetic in nature. Almost all of the types have not even been fulfilled in that which they foreshadow. You never see them enumerate these. They just go to direct statements about his being born in Bethlehem, things of that uh, nature. Now, your festivals... Passover, they're in Leviticus 23, if you want to follow. I'll just tell you, you don't need to turn there. You're in Daniel 9. Hold your place there. I'll be there in a minute. It'll take uh, uh, five, ten minutes to do what I'm going to do right now. Then I'll show you something out of Daniel. Then we'll go to Genesis 18 and 19 and finish up. I guarantee to have you out of here by 11, 11.30, 12. Not to worry. No, not really. It's not going to take all that much longer. This is the last go-around anyway, and if you, for 15 minutes extra, it's not going to cost you that much. Now, the seven festivals, and I like to refer to these as the prophetic calendar of Israel. They have to do with Israel. Now, they, there is an application to the church. You can fit the church within these festivals applying them to the church and uh, see the same thing, basically. Not exactly, but basically the same thing. All right, let's look at them in the light of the fact that they really outline what is about to happen out ahead concerning the nation of Israel, relative to the nation of Israel. I started to do something a while ago, and I can think back right now that... Uh, I did what I've been accused of, and I'm guilty. I was about to set Daniel's 70th week up alongside the 69th, and I uh, stated uh, in one of the uh, past lessons about how that when the 70th week begins, the generation of Jews alive, which is undoubtedly the same generation on the scene today, will be placed in a position as if they had just crucified their Messiah. But really, that's all beside the point, because the generation of Jews out there today is just as guilty of crucifying their Messiah as any past generation. The passage of generations, a passage of time, changes nothing. Generation after generation, they come and go. They're guilty of blood dating all the way back or going all the way back to Adam. All right, these festivals... Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Those occurred in the first part of the year. Then you had three more trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. 
Royce dealt with tabernacles. I'm going to provide some material leading into what he talked about, and he's already talked about it, so I won't have to talk about it. That's nice. And he did a better job than I'd be doing anyway, so we, we've got that part of it taken care of. Now, relative to Israel, not a single one of these festivals has been fulfilled. Well, they've uh, slain the lamb. That would fulfill the Passover. No, it wouldn't. The lamb not only had to be slain, but that blood had to be caught uh, and taken uh, hyssop dipped in and properly applied. They have slain the lamb. The blood has been shed, but they've never applied the blood. So insofar as Israel is concerned, we're halfway on that festival. And that has to occur first. And that will occur through Israel seeing her Messiah after his feet touch the Mount of Olives. Jews scattered throughout the earth are going to somehow supernaturally see their Messiah. They're not going to be gathered back to the Middle East to see their Messiah. They're going to see them where they are. You want me to explain how that's going to happen? Good, I can. I have no idea. Somehow, God will cause it to happen. And I don't think you have to look to television or anything like that to try to explain it. God has means uh, that we know nothing about. They're going to look upon the pierced one at the point where they are. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's keep on with the festivals. That's simple. Unleavened bread is the next. That was a festival that lasted seven days and seven, a complete number. It lasted for a complete period of time. They were to put sin out of the house, recognize what they had done and put it out of the house. Now, that, we're going to tie that in with the Day of Atonement in just a minute. That sin's not done away with. It's just it's put out of the house. Of what sin would Israel be guilty of? All types of disobedience. Harlotry tops the list. Read the book of Hosea sometimes, all about Israel's harlotry. So much of the Old Testament's about Israel's harlotry. Where's Israel's harlotry done away with in the New Testament? Well, that's Revelation 17 and 18. If you don't have Israel's harlotry done away with or dealt with at this point in the book of Revelation then you don't have it in the book of Revelation. And that's what the whole of chapter 6 through leading into 17 is all about, to bring Israel to this point where her harlotry will be done away with. Now, I turned out some articles on uh, this, uh, that is, these chapters uh, some years ago, and it's uh, they're in print out there. You'll also find it in my book on the time of the end. I say that to say this. Uh, when I was uh, writing those articles, I was looking for material written by others to just see what they had on it. I always like to check some things. Uh, if I find somebody that knows what they're talking about, it's, you pick up some ideas from other men that have studied things like that. Well, I contacted one of the editors of, the, uh, of a certain commentary. Uh, that should have known the, the answer to the question, and it surprised me when he uh, answered what I asked him, and that is, do you know of any commentaries out there that treat Revelation 17 and 18, the uh, harlot in these chapters, as dealing with Israel? That is, see Israel as a harlot, and see the harlot burned with the, Israel's harlotry being done away with. 
His response was, well, I'll check a few and see if I can find something on it. I thought, check a few. I know what's in the commentaries that he's going to check. He checked three or four, wrote back and said, well, no, these men don't see it that way. Here's a seminary professor making a statement like that. Now, either he just didn't want to take time to mess with me or what, but, man, I, anybody, almost anyone would know what was in a lot of these commentaries, uh, especially the ones that he checked. So I don't know what's, what's with it there. But uh, I've lost, I don't know. I, well, I better not say what I was about to say. Forget it. Let it go. All right. We've gone through unleavened bread, first fruits. What's first fruits? Well, that has to do with resurrection. Christ was raised on the feast of first fruits. This is, uh, insofar as Israel is concerned, the Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead. Now, Pentecost, this has to do with the pouring out of the Spirit of God. It has to do with the nation of Israel, not pouring it out on all the Gentile nations. Those are your first four. Now, we get into the fifth, the Feast of Trumpets. There's where you have the removal of Israel from the Gentile nations. When Christ returns in Matthew 24, latter part of the Jewish section, he'll send his angels out with a great sound of a trumpet to regather his people from the four winds, one end of heaven to the other. They'll bring them back into the land. Now what's the next festival? It's the Day of Atonement. We're almost to tabernacles, but we've got to take care of what they put out of the house in the second festival. Put sin out of the house. Now we have to have the Day of Atonement. But this, within the New Testament, at a type, will be the Day of Reconciliation. Remember I told you about atonement and reconciliation? Atonement has to do with a covering for sin. Reconciliation has to do with the doing away with sin. Shown in the two goats on the Day of Atonement, the one being driven and one uh, being slain, the other being driven into the wilderness. I've already dealt with that. I'll just allude to it. That's in Leviticus 16 if you want to refer to it. So it's here that Israel's sin that they had previously put out of the house will be dealt with and they'll have been regathered back to the land at this time. And then the Feast of Tabernacles comes into play. Now, are you in Daniel 9? Let me show you something very interesting. If you don't have a King James, you're, you're out of luck. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy sevens are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make, look at that next word, that's almost prophetic. It should have been literally translated atonement. That's what the Hebrew word means, but really, that which will occur out ahead is reconciliation. So here's a mistranslation that's probably better off 
being a mistranslation because it tells actually what will occur. If you have an NASB, NIV, so forth, it's probably translated, should I say correctly, rather than incorrectly, but it leaves a wrong connotation. So there's a plus for the KJV in one respect. I don't know. Well, maybe it's not because it's mistranslated. But <laughs> then, then I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. It's, uh, I just find it to be an amazing way to the, the translators handle it. Maybe they looked ahead and figured, let's just put down here what it really is. That may be what they did. I, I don't know. All right, let's... Uh, do you see the order of events when Christ returns? He's going to appear. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And Israel will have been brought to the place... They will have been brought past the place of repentance. They'll have repented, called upon the God of their fathers, else Christ wouldn't have returned. Then they're going to put sin out of the house. Well, I need to say one other thing before sin out of the house. We have to have the national conversion. They're going to look upon their Messiah whom they pierced. You find that they're going to say, what are those wounds in uh, your hands? Well, it's really the more in the wrist. They, they, if they had uh, driven uh, the nail into the hands, it would split into the wrist. The bone would hold it. What are those wounds? And he'll tell them, those with which I, I was wounded in the house of uh, my friends. This is a day when you find a great mourning in the camp of Israel. And then they put sin out of the house, later reconciliation for that sin. But then uh, we have the resurrection of Old Testament saints while Israel is still scattered. Note that there are many Old Testament saints uh, that would be buried in uh, Gentile lands. For example, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Israelites taken into Babylon. Prior to that, uh, taken over into uh, Assyria. And then that was somewhat uh, brought together with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But uh, numerous Jews, Daniel, for example, would be buried in a Gentile land. In that respect, numerous other Jews. Though I'm not sure I said that, now I might have to backtrack because I'm not sure exactly where Daniel is buried. And some of that land over there would actually be the land within the Abrahamic covenant. But... We have the res- at any rate, we have the resurrection of Jews uh, prior to uh, the Israelites being taken out of these uh, Gentile lands out ahead. And uh, then uh, the Spirit poured out, and then their angels are sent out, and they're brought out of these lands, taken back into the Middle East to the land covenanted to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their Messiah will be there in their midst. He'll deal with them relative to the sin that they put out of the house. And one thing will occur before the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when he'll bring these Gentile armies into uh, the land to destroy them, destroy Gentile world power completely. He's already decimated it during the tribulation. Now he's going to finish the job, completely destroy it. Sections of scripture such as Joel, other sections, show Messiah in the midst of his people when these Gentile powers come in. 
This is really what Ezekiel 38 and 9 are about. It doesn't have to do with Russia coming down in the first part of the tribulation or some such thing. If you read what's in those chapters, you'll find that Messiah is there in the land in the midst of his people when these armies come in. Not everything is presented in any one part of Scripture. Ezekiel 38 and 39 present one part. Uh, Joel presents another part. Uh, the types, another part. You have to, they're presenting uh, word pictures, you might say, or parts of a word picture. You have to put all these together to get the complete picture. Now, we saw this in Genesis uh, 10 and 11. It was after the tribulation and after Israel, uh, typified by uh, Noah planting the vineyard, drinking wine, uh, by Shem, seen as the only one of the sons with a god, and the other sons could be blessed through dwelling in the tents of Shem, picturing Israel restored during the Messianic era, or about to be uh, taken into the Messianic era in that respect. And it's after that, in chapters 10 and the first part of chapter 11, that Gentile world power is seen destroyed by the destruction occurring in the first king of Babylon's empire, foreshadowing the destruction that is about to occur in the last king of Babylon's empire. And what we have in Genesis chapters 12 right on through 19 is more commentary. Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldees typifies the Israelites, yet future, called out from a worldwide dispersion. It just typifies what's been seen in previous chapters, more commentary on these. And we have two different pictures of the destruction of Gentile world power in these uh, this section. One, the Battle of the Kings with Melchizedek appearing. The other, in chapters 18 and 19, when you have three men appearing to Abraham, one is the Lord himself, the other two angels, and it has to do with the destruction of the cities of the plain. There were five cities in uh, that plain, four of them destroyed, a uh, lot allowed to go to Zor uh, as a place of uh, safety for a while. At the time of the destruction, uh, Lot was a, uh, he, uh, he became afraid to dwell there, and he went on out into the mountain where he was told to go. But your final, uh, your picture in the final form is Abraham rising up early in the morning. Abraham standing before the Lord. He looks out and he just sees the smoke coming up of these cities. Abraham is on the mountain, typifying Israel on the mountain in that coming day. Now, there's a dual type through here. One has to do with Israel. The other has to do with Christians. I'm just going to deal with Israel at this point. It's, uh, I've kept you long enough. And I don't need to go back. We're, we're talking about Israel right now. Let's just stay with Israel. But Abraham typifying Israel, he's on the mount. In other words, he's in the kingdom as such. As Israel will be in the kingdom in that day. The Messianic era, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, is just about to start. Everything is ready except for one thing. Those cities of the plain have to be destroyed. This Gentile power coming in has to be destroyed. 
and the scepter given to Israel that they've held for 26, what, 100 years, somewhere in that neighborhood, they're about to relinquish it. All of the F-16s, 18s, 22s, all the battleships, the tanks, the whole bit, going out the window because the swords are going to be turned into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and all of the Gentiles' wealth is going to that little nation. Scattered throughout the Gentile world right now, part of them in the Middle East. But things are about to happen. After the smoke comes up, the, the, uh, the cities of the plain, the destruction of the cities of the plain, as described when Abraham viewed these cities, is about as good as you can get as to what will happen. The smoke of these cities came up as the smoke of a furnace. That's where Gentile world power is headed. If you want to get out and uh, try to help your uh, man get into power uh, in a few days, well, hey, be my guest. I wouldn't suggest it. I'd suggest uh, maybe waiting a few more days, looking in another direction, my man is not running yet, and he's not going to have to run. You see, that's the idea. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you've allowed us to look into your word, to go through this section of scripture in this somewhat uh, scattered manner, uh, presenting an overall uh, picture. And uh, I just ask that things that have been said by any of the speakers might uh, that not in accord with your word might uh, uh, just uh, people might recognize it and it might not uh, might just study these things out and uh, that uh, they'll see whether uh, things are so whether things are not so if uh, they be so uh, that people will recognize it through the study of the word if they be not so they'll recognize that through the study of the word we just uh, Trust that you'll move upon the people in their studies in that respect. It's in Christ's name. Amen.